And yours too. Yeah. I want to look at the book of Deuteronomy today as history and as literature and as Torah, as teaching. So, um, and we'll sort of get a sense of how it operates on all those levels and how interesting each of those levels is to investigate and how one doesn't contradict the other. First, let's say a blessing. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. We're going to engage in the words of Torah. Last week we talked about the, the month of Av and the three weeks that we're in that culminate tomorrow night with Tisha B'Av. So before we dive into this, um, we were talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, and Bob Messing, who, among his many interests, he's an expert on ancient coins, uh, brought one for us to look at. Yes? So, um, the significance of the coin that I brought, and I'll pass around, but of course the doors are going to be locked <laughs> until I get it back, <laughs> is that from the from the first temple, which was built by King Solomon, nothing remains archaeological. We have no archaeological proof that it was there. From the second temple also, from the temple itself, next to nothing remains. But between the time of the destruction of the first temple and the second, and the building of the second temple, a remarkable uh, innovation happened. Coins were invented. Coins were invented in Turkey about 600 BCE. And that changed commerce forever. Before coins, if you bought something, you weighed silver or gold in a scale provided by the merchant. He had what was presumed to be <coughs> legitimate weights. You, he put his weights on one side. You put your silver or gold on the other side. When the scales balanced, you had a deal. The merchant took the gold or silver, and you took the the ox or the grain or whatever. Coins were invented about the time the first temple was destroyed. First Jewish coins were minted by the nephew of Judah Maccabee called John Hyrcanus I. And Jewish rulers minted coins thereafter. Starting in 65, the Jews revolted against Rome. And they minted silver coins for the first time in the temple. The coin that I have has on it a shin and a bed which stands for year two. Year two what? Year two since the start of the war. The war was started in 65. Year two is 67. So we know precisely when it was minted. 
And this is the only thing we can touch today that existed when the Jews were fighting the Romans to preserve the temple. Mm -hmm. So this coin most probably were held by Jewish soldiers or their wives or it existed when the temple existed. We can say that about very few other things that we can hold today. So on one side it says shekel Yisrael, a shekel of Israel. That's a double entendre because a shekel means a weight. But this weight was called a coin and this coin was called a shekel. So it's like a double entendre. And it has on that side a chalice. Chalice which was used in the temple. Now, there were no newspapers then and there was no television. But the leaders of the revolt had to do things to inspire patriotism. So they put a chalice on it because it said, hey, we're fighting for the temple in which this chalice is used. What's a chalice? A cup. A cup. A cup. A cup. On the other side, it says Yerushalayim HaKadosha, Jerusalem the Holy. Again, PR, nationalism, come join the fight. And it has on it a pomegranate uh, plant with three buds. Again, one of the seven plants of the land of Israel. So. As you hold the coin, it's like a 2,000-year magic carpet ride. Mm. Back to those thrilling days of yesteryear. <laughs> when the temple was destroyed, which we're going to read Saturday night. Right. So, enjoy. In the, in the Jerusalem Museum, are there other artifacts? Yes, you can touch the stones that made up, it, the stones of, of, from that temple are, have been identified. Uh, and especially in the dig on the southern wall, uh, they have uncovered an incredible amount of finds from what appear to be the destruction of that uh, second temple. Uh, so yeah, there's other, there's other things of evidence. But the coin is, the, is a true souvenir. It's, uh, it, it was made to rem to, so people would know we're here. And uh, that's really fascinating. What's it made of, by the way? What is the coin made silver. of? Silver. This is silver. Great. Um, the coins up to that time were just bronze, and they were thin, because Rome was the governing power, and they minted the money, the real money. The Jews in 65, starting with 65, saying, no. We're uh, in power. That's still true today when you mm. claim your own, you know, yeah. talk about the Eurozone. All right. Did it have a monetary value? Yes. Um, yeah, this was very valuable monetarily. Yeah, but I mean, it was. A set monetary value. It was yes. a single, oh, yes. a single, yes. a shekel means a weight, right. a single weight so. of silver. 
was yes. five shekels. <laughs> Were they larger coins too? I don't think so. I think this was the largest denomination of, of Jewish coin. Do they know what it was purchased in those days? I could find that out. I, I don't know it offhand, but I could, but this was a lot. Yes. You this could, was a lot. I imagine people have figured that out by studying texts that say, and he paid X shekels for yeah, the yes. such and so. Uh -huh. A cow or something. Yeah. Was this the only coin, or were there other coins? Was this the only coin, or oh, were no. there other coins? There are not a lot of them, but a number... Hundreds, maybe thousands were minted. But with different... Uh, do they all have the same designs on yes. them? They all have yes. the same, same, same designs. So the same work. Right, yeah. I just see JW. Does that mean something? That's a shin and a bet. Oh, shin, a bet. shin bet. Shana bet. They, each year, the only thing that changed was the year that it was minted. Otherwise, you have the chalice on one side, you have the pomegranate on the other. Hmm. So remember when we were underneath all that stuff at the wall? In Jerusalem? Yes. There's a place, there's now an opportunity in Jerusalem to go uh, through the tunnels uh, uh, next to the bedrock of the ancient wall, literally underneath the current um, dwell neighborhoods of Jerusalem. So That's we went. the bedrock on which the temples. The, the temple retaining wall was built, yeah. 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 I'm having a little problem understanding the year 65. You're saying that that was the year of the war. That was the year the war started. The rebellion against Rome. Now, what was that, 65, what we recognize as AD? Uh, yes. Is that the 65? We don't. Uh, some of us don't use the word AD, they use the word CE. Okay, CE, I, I understand because what you to say. A, you know what AD stands for? Year of our Lord. Anno Domini. Anno Domini, year of our Lord. So, so okay, but that's the 65. Right. Yeah, 65 of... After when they started that... Well, no, that counting didn't get started till several centuries later. Uh, uh, because Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't our Lord in the year. 65. In other words, calendars were, are created retro, actively to the year of Jesus' birth. And so the Christian counting became, because Christianity ruled the West, eventually the Christian counting became. So now it's common parlance to talk about the first century and the year 65. But in the year 65, it wasn't the year 65, because <laughs> that counting hadn't been invented yet. No, no, it says year, 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 two. year two. Jesus' year. Oh, we're saying it says 67. Year, year, year two of the war against Rome. So is Shin okay. mean year? Is Shin means Shana. 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 Yeah. Shana. Okay, good. Bet year is two. two. Gotcha. Mm. Do, do you understand? For our, because of, the, because of the context of how we, Western civilization, keeps time, we now talk about the first century, right. the year 67, but this coin says year two meaning year two of the declared independence against Rome mm -hmm. by the Jews in Jerusalem. And somehow year one before, uh, also co corresponded with what we now call... 66. Uh, you know, we now call it 65, but the Jews, when they made the rebellion, counted as one. 
because they had declared independence from Rome. The Romans, Romans had their own counting, usually based on the, the, uh, Emperor. the, the emperor's um, reign. Yes. But no matter what you called it, it was all the same time. Ex- so pres- then, yes. So then it was in the time of Jesus. This Do you, no, it's several decades after Jesus. He was dead. He died when he was But the reason we call it A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, is because as far as Christians are concerned, time really began in when, the moment Jesus was born. And Christian tradition dates his birth to what we call the year zero. So this war that took place in what we say is year 65 was long before the time that we now call uh, CE. No, it, it, was CE. it was long before that counting existed. But you would say it was CE 65. See, here are Christians in the what we now call the fourth century saying, our calendar is going to be based on when Jesus was born. That's the beginning of the new era. Right, I'm trying to, co- I'm trying to pull it together. Right, so let, let me try again. So say it's the, what we call the fourth century, several hundred years after Jesus has died, okay, and was born. And the Christians, who are now a huge group, they've taken over the Roman Empire, <laughs> They want to declare that time really began when our Lord and Savior was born. Okay. So they decide which year that was and say the count starts from there. And everything before that, B.C., before Christ. Okay. In other words, history doesn't really begin until Christ is born. Right. So that's, and then Christianity becomes the dominant culture and civilization of the West. And so everybody adopts that counting. Okay, so where is this coin in that time frame? This coin is coined in the Christian time frame, the year 67. In the Christian time frame? Right. In the Jewish time frame, which is now we're in the year 5,775, it's a different counting. In other words, counting years is a completely culturally determined phenomenon. So this this would be 67 years after the birth of Christ. Right? This coin. So we can, and now we're at 2015 years after the birth of Christ, according to Christian counting, which has become the way everybody counts in the world. But the counting, the Christian counting, didn't exist at this time. We're like doing, we're just doing like, we're trying to line up all the threats. We know who the Roman emperor was, we know what was going on, we know what the Christian year was, and we line them all up. That's that's how we do it. I hope that's helpful. Right, so this war took place? In the year 66 to the year 70 in the first century of the... uh Uh-huh. Okay, so this is the first century. it's the first century which didn't exist as the first century until some centuries later when the Christians got to decide that this was the first century. How did the chocolate last so long? Year 70, the year 70 of the first century, the, the revolt, the re, right, it was the year 70, the revolt was defeated and Jerusalem was destroyed. No, the revolt wasn't defeated. Jerusalem, Jerusalem was, was defeated. The revolt continued for another three years. Masada, Masada was, in year 73, was the very end of the revolt. 
When did the Jewish calendar start to be used? The Counting 5,700 and... Yeah. Do you know the answer to that question? Um, a long time ago. But it's a rabbinic creation. So, so in other words, sometime, sometime during the uh, Hellenistic period, the rabbis said, we are going to determine what year it is in our counting. And they did it by going back to the beginning, in the beginning, and they counted. And Adam was born, and then Seth was born, and then and they added up all the years right through the Bible, right through all the Tanakh, right through Alexander the Great, and they counted them up. And he said, so therefore, according to the Bible, it is the year, at that point, say, 3,700 or something. But we don't know when they did not precisely. And that, that since the world was created. Since the world was created, right. Not since Christ was born, which is a different kind of creation, uh, but since the world was created, right. Thank you. Oh, it still has such a nice heft. Oh, wow. What an incredible object. Doesn't the uh, oil on the fingers uh, deteriorate the Excuse coin? Excuse me? Doesn't the oil on, on human fingertips deteriorate the coin? I'm surprised you... Uh, it it hasn't. Uh -huh. uh, oil causes more oxidation on bronze coins. Mm -hmm. But not on silver? Not as much on silver. Occasionally you see silver coins that are blackened mm -hmm. from oxidation. But you can get that tarnish off. Yeah, but you very careful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, or can you pass it over? Oh, absolutely. They didn't get to see it yet, Bob, at that table. How much are you going to give him? <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about a piece of matzo? Thank you. <laughs> no, he didn't know. He didn't know. Uh, Jay? Do we have any idea, just because just I have no idea, of just the, the social social organization, I mean, I mean, you have Israel and the Romans, so, so is there a state of Israel that, that had a mint? No, we know a lot about it. At that point, Israel was a province governed by the Roman Empire. The, Ro the, it, the Jews had been so problematic for the Romans that they took over their school system, as it were. They, uh, they, they, they took away their whatever sovereignty they had as a Roman province and installed their own governor, Pontius Pilate, right? And so the Jews were slowly losing more and more autonomy. Eventually, it led to a rebellion against right. Rome. Right, but, but I'm thinking um, um, there were Roman coins. Yes. It must have been very difficult to um, integrate an, a, a Jewish coin Yes, this, as much as anything, this was a statement. They weren't really in a great position to create their own currency. No way. And the coin of the realm, when uh, the rabbis talk about it all the time, they say, see how amazing God the creator is. When a Roman emperor uh, stamps their face on a coin, Every coin is the same. But when God stamps God's imprint on every face, of every human face, each one is different. 
See, so they, you know, Jesus says, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God. So Roman coins, that was the currency. This was a rebellion, and this was a statement. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was, that was uh, accurate, wasn't it? Is there any indication that the shekel weight was what they used for that amount of silver? Or? This is a legitimate weight of what the shekel was. Okay, so yeah. in a sense they're not competing as strongly as it would seem, because this is the amount of weight, if it was a lump, or a coin, it would be the same weight and would have the same value. Yeah, but currency was already um, yeah. uh, used for more than its weight right, right. Uh, at this time. Yeah. So, no, by stamping their own currency, they were making a statement of rebellion. Yes. Yes. Um, and someone would say, I don't want your coin. I need a coin that's accepted by the Roman authorities. Right? right? Sure. So, great, so you have a piece of silver. It means nothing to me. I'm not taking it. Just like Confederate money, Confederate like Confederate money, like that's why that's why this should be so familiar to us. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Thank you, Bob. That's, yeah, that's this is great. totally Founder fascinating. Great. Wow. Oh, and you may have noticed that the Hebrew print is not readable to us pretty much. Yeah. The Hebrew, the block Hebrew letters that we are accustomed to, were were not. Um, uh, what's the word? Uh, com- w- the, w- the completely accepted uh, Hebrew writing. This is, a, this is a, a standardized. This was an older form of Hebrew writing. And when you say, look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll recognize, uh, um, you can sort of read it, but you sort of can't. It's an older Hebrew script. Yeah. So cool. Okay. So since we're on a history, uh, uh, history track, I want to start by talking about the book of Jeremiah from an historical perspective. And the reason the book of Deuteronomy lends itself to this is it's the only book of the five books of Moses, the only book of the Torah, that we seem to be able to identify as existing from other sources in the Hebrew Bible. Does that make sense? Okay, so... In the book of Kings, which we're going to open to, I think, I think rather than explain it, I'm just going to show it to you. So, those who know how to navigate, I don't have the same pagination as you, but if you'd like to, you can look for the second book of Kings, two Kings, chapter 22. Well, I have different pagination, but here, oh, let me use one of those and find it for everybody. Kings, yeah. what a one kings. Kings. No. no. Two. Kings. Two kings. Is, a, is this the same as this? No, no. What oh, I should explain that everybody. Chapter 22. Page 65. The book we book. usually use is a Torah or a Chumash. It is the five books of Moses. This is the entire Old Testament, the entire Hebrew Bible. And uh, it's on page 605 in this edition, 605. The green copy also is the same as the No, no, no. This is the Bible of This is the book of Kings. This is where? No. Oh, 22. Oh, 
Everyone, I have to back up a little to make sure we all know what we're, we're saying. The five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, or the Torah, is one-third of the Hebrew Bible, the first third. The other parts of the Hebrew Bible are the books of the prophets and the section called the writings. Therefore, to access the full books of the prophets and the writings, you have to have what's called a Tanakh, which is the Hebrew acronym which you're holding, which is the Hebrew acronym for the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. It is known as the Old Testament by Christians or the Hebrew scriptures. This entire collection of books is our Bible. The Torah, the five books of Moses, is considered the most important and primary part. However, when we, the, think of all the other books of the Bible you're familiar with. Psalms, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Job, um, the book of Esther, the Song of Songs. They're all part of the Hebrew Bible. They're just not part of the five books of Moses. When in our chumash, the reason it's so fat is because it's filled with commentary. What you're holding here is just the text and translation. So that's why the books don't compare in size. It's also, because it's a chumash, it's made for synagogue use. And that means it has, after each weekly portion, a section from the prophets, an excerpt, a little bitty excerpt, called the Haftorah. So Bob happened to open to page 605. Lo and behold, in here, there's a Haftorah portion from the Book of Kings. So that's very confusing. But that Haftorah portion is just a tiny excerpt of the entire corpus. So that's, that, that's, that sort of orients us. So here we are in a section of the section of the Bible called the Books of Prophets called the Book of Kings. The Book of Kings is divided into Kings 1 and Kings 2, two volumes. There is no particular significance to that. The best theory I read is that it was too long to have on one scroll in the ancient libraries and therefore was typically written on two scrolls, one and two. The Book of Kings follows the history of Israel during the monarchy of the house of King David. The Book of Kings begins with David's death and the accession of Solomon to the throne sometime in the maybe 900-ish and continues in recounting stories, lore, and history until the year about 586 BCE, so it covers about 300 or 350 years of ancient Israelite history when we are in the land of Israel, right? So as opposed to the Bible, which is all preparatory, the Torah, which is all preparatory to entering the land, this part of the, of the, the Torah, this part of the Bible is covering an historical period that we know a little more about, and these books are much less edifying than the Torah is. They're historical, they're, they're um, uh, what should I say, they're lore, they're uh, stories. They're not a law book, okay? 
So one of the reasons I suspect they're not studied is because they don't have as much, they're not as meaty in that sense as a teaching. Remember, Torah, the five books of Moses, means teaching. So in the book of Kings, we can learn about Jewish history. The, now, so let's look at chapter 22 of the book of, of Kings. Second book of Kings, where it starts, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Do you see it, everybody? Let me see which edition you have. Uh, okay. Yes. Is this part of the writing? No, it's part of the prophets. The section of the prophets contains both historical books known as Book of Judges, the Book of Joshua, the Book of Samuel, which covers King David's reign, and the Book of Kings. And then it contains the prophetic writings that were generated during that period, the, the prophetic writings. Uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the 12 minor prophets, who are called minor prophets because their books are shorter, not because they um, were, young. Were, less, were young or less important. <laughs> right. It appears in the, ancient, in the ancient scribal libraries that the 12 minor prophets were all composed and kept on one scroll, whereas Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, being much longer, each had their own scroll. So these datings go way, these namings go way, way back, well before there were any codexes or books, when everything was kept on scrolls. And these are closer to history, too. They are closer to history. We will hear about personages uh, that we know of from uh, Assyria, Babylonia, Egypt, and so we can date some of these events. Ha- the, the factuality of them, it's suspect. Uh, and that's a whole other talk about what archaeology has shown to be factual, uh, which is completely amazing when, you know, it's the archaeologist's holy grail when you find the tunnel that Hezekiah said he built to uh, withstand a siege in the 700s BCE. And then 100 years ago, when they find this tunnel, and then they see the inscription saying King Hezekiah ordered it that no one's seen for 100, you know, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, I think we can assume that we're talking basically history here. Um, Okay. So Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yedida, daughter of Adiah of Bozkah. He did what was pleasing to the Lord, and he followed all the ways of his ancestor David. He did not deviate to the right or to the left. That's the editor's comment about whether he was a good king or not. Um, So when is this? Well, we can date Josiah because of the, and I'm not going to go, I want to zip along a little bit. We can date Josiah to around the year um, 600 BCE, 607 or 610 or something like that. So, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent the scribe Shaphan, which is a great name. Anyone know what Shaphan means? Uh, Rabbit. Rabbit. Yeah, his name was Bunny. Bunny. I was like that. There's, there's a lot of animal names 
you know, Dove is bear and Zev is wolf. And uh, so this guy's name was Shafan, uh, or Rock Badger, also known as. Um, Shafan, son of Azalia, um, Azaliahu, son of Meshulam, Hasofer, the scribe. He's from a, he's a scribe, uh, which is pretty interesting. Uh, now, what's interesting about Shafan is that he also turns up in the book of Jeremiah. Yes. Jeremiah is written during this period. We know that because he recounts the destruction of Jerusalem in Jeremiah. So uh, uh, biblical scholars compare Jeremiah to kings uh, and see how much they line up, and they do quite a bit. Um, then these Bible scholars compare kings and Jeremiah and their use of Hebrew, their most favorite phraseologies, their most favorite terms, you know, and they compare it to Deuteronomy. And they find that there are usages in Deuteronomy that are not used in the rest of the five books of Moses, but that are used extensively here in Kings and in Jeremiah. Does that make sense, yeah. everybody? So looking for language use and style, the style of Deuteronomy lines up incredibly well with the style of these passages and the book of Jeremiah, whereas the other four books of the Bible don't. So you'll see why I'm getting to that. Um, so, uh, so he goes to Shaphan the scribe. Uh, the king sends the scribe uh, to the house of the Lord, meaning the holy temple, to talk to the high priest there, and says, go to the high priest Hilkiah and let him weigh the silver. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yatem et hakesef, that has been deposited in the house. Oh, anyone know the Hebrew word for money? Kesef. Kesef is silver in Hebrew. And Kesef is money in Hebrew. That's how long that's been the case. Uh, uh, that has been deposited in the Beit HaMikdash, the house of the Lord, Beit Adonai, which the guards of the threshold have collected from the people, the taxes, that is. And let it be delivered to the overseers of the work who are in charge at the house of the Lord, that they in turn may pay it out to workmen that are in the house of the Lord, the repair of the house, to the carpenters, the laborers, and the masons, and for the purchase of wood and quarried stones for repairing the house. However, no check is to be kept on them for the silver that is delivered to them, for they deal honestly. That's interesting. Uh, the king is saying, I trust my workers. I don't need receipts. Just pay them for the work they do. So then the high priest, Chilkiah, Chilkiahu, said to the scribe Shaphan, listen to this, Sefer HaTorah Matzati Beveit Adonai. I have found a Sefer Torah, a scroll of teaching, in the house of the Lord. What an interesting episode. What do you mean he found a scroll of the teaching? Um, it's the first time in the Bible that we hear any language like this, right? It's always, this is the Torah, right? In the, in the five books of Moses, this is the Torah, except in Deuteronomy, where they talk about a Sefer Torah, a scroll of teaching. Um, and Chilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, who read it. He's a scribe. Not that many people could read, I imagine. 
The scribe Shaphan then went to the king and reported to the king, your servants have melted down the silver that was deposited in the house, and they have delivered it to the overseers of the work who are in charge at the house of the Lord. And then the scribe Shaphan also told the king, the high priest Chilkiyahu has given me a scroll. And Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard the words of the scroll of the teaching, he rent his clothes. He tore his clothes as a sign of mourning and grief. Why? Well, if this is the book of Deuteronomy and it's describing how you're supposed to worship the Lord, then the, Jerusalem's in big trouble. <laughs> Wait, I'm going to read on. Uh, but this King Josiah is known for creating then a religious reform in Jerusalem to come into alignment with the teachings of this Sefer Torah that Chilkiah found in the, whole, in the house of God and that Shaphan read to him. Uh, so this, this scroll precipitates a religious reform. Um, and the king gave orders to the priest Chilkiah, to Ahikam son of Shaphan, Achbar son of Micaiah. Achbar is another great name. Akbar, mouse. His name's Mouse. I, I don't. I just like this. And so there's rabbit and mouse. Um, his name's Akbar. Okay, the scribe Shafan and uh, Asaya, the king's minister. Here's the order from the king: Go inquire of the Lord on my behalf and on behalf of the people and on behalf of all of Judah concerning the words of this scroll that has been found. For great indeed must be the wrath of the Lord that has been kindled against us, because our fathers did not obey the words of this scroll to do all that has been prescribed to us. Uh, everything that's written down here. So the priests Chilkiah and Achikam, Achbar, Shafan, Asayah, where'd they go? This is fascinating. They went to a woman named Hulda, who was a prophet. So there are female prophets in Jerusalem who you go to to hear the word of God. I love this whole passage for how it's, it's, just, it's just great. So Chulda, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Charchas, the keeper of the royal wardrobe, who was living in Jerusalem in the Mishneh, which according to this is a quarter in Jerusalem. And they spoke to her, and Chulda the prophetess responded, Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel. Say to the man who sent you to me, Thus said the Lord, I am going to bring disaster upon this place and its inhabitants in accordance with all the words of the scroll which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods and vexed me with all their deeds, my wrath is kindled against this place and it shall not be quenched. This is the language of Deuteronomy, everybody, trust me. But say this to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, as for the words which you have heard, because your heart was softened and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I decreed against this place and its inhabitants, that it will become a desolation and a curse. And because you rent your clothes and wept before me, I for my part have listened, declares the Lord. Assuredly, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be laid to in your tomb in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the disaster which I will bring upon this place. Chulda has spoken. So they brought back the reply to the king. 
Now, the Book of Kings is not a history book, or let's say it's a history book, but it has a point of view that it's explicit about, which is that the whole sequence of this monarchy of King House of King David is dependent on the keeping of the covenant that the prophets declared, and that as a result of them not having kept the covenant in the year 586, which is only 20 years after this, um, Jerusalem is destroyed. So they are, the, whoever edited this book, most scholars think, wrote, did so in Babylon, in exile, and wrote the history based on the outcome that they were experiencing and explained the history based on that outcome. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah. So there really wasn't anyone predicting it. It was after the fact. Right. Speaking as an historian, yeah. it's, one might say that, no, it's not predictive. It's post, it's project, it's post. Yeah, Ellen, you want to Yeah. Um, Jeremiah was alive during this time. And I, just two Good weeks point, ago, good just point. Two weeks ago, I would, like, he predicted it. Right. But the history was written later. Mm -hmm. But, um, I was, uh, just two weeks ago, I was in a class learning, uh, just studying the book of Jeremiah, and my small group in the larger class came up with the, just the, the idea of Jeremiah had already spent years telling the people, listen guys, you know what you're supposed to do, and you're not doing it. The enemy, the, the empire from the north is going to come down and destroy us. That's, a, that's Babylonian. And, Babylonian. And, was, and he, he knew about the empire from the north even before Babylon became great. And we, we just sort of imagined Jeremiah and Josiah um, in, in the king's quarters having a glass of wine or something saying, how are we going to get the people to listen to what you, Jeremiah, how are we going to get people to listen to what you've been saying? I believe that the people close to me will follow my orders, but what about everybody else in the, in the country? Jeremiah said, uh-huh. Tell you what, I'll write it out for you. You find it and and like cast it back. <laughs> and that's and Jeremiah wrote Devarim. Jeremiah. Wrote There's the a theory that Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the author of Deuteronomy. Ah. Nothing to prove it, except the use of language and the things that it said, sure. and and the fact that in the earlier books of the Torah, a lot of Deuteronomy-like language is there where it doesn't seem to fit the style of the words around it, and so they think that that's the stuff that was added later. It's just amazing. It's totally fascinating. It's great detective work. Yes, Jeremiah is predicting that if you do not follow the terms of the covenant, you're gonna, you're done, we're done. Josiah accepts this. Whatever, the, whatever this scroll that the high priest finds <laughs> in the temple precipitates Josiah's religious reform, but doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't prevent the ultimate destruction, and just 20 years hence. Yes, Stu? And also, the, whoever predicts the future, and there'll be many people predicting the future, and the one that matches up to what really happened is, could be called a prophet rather than this arbitrary... Well, there's a section in Deuteronomy, which I'm going to show you, saying how can you tell if a prophet is a true prophet? And the answer is, which is sort of 
tautology is if their words come to pass, then they were a true prophet. But if you assume that this was composed with Jeremiah in mind and the knowledge that his prophecy was correct, uh, then Deuteronomy fits into an historical context more, with more uh, agreement from scholars all over the place than anything else in the Bible, which is, I find, interesting and worth, worth discussing. Yes? I forgot. It's the first pasuk in your Thank you so much. That really strengthens it, Shira. I'll repeat that. Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah begins. You don't have to turn to it. These are the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiyahu. So the Hilkiyahu who finds this scroll is Jeremiah's father. A priestly family, a high priestly family. Thank you. It's like, it's, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense because in Jeremiah, it's the son of Shaphan who is protecting Jeremiah. And here it's Shaphan and Chilkiah. So this goes into the next generation. Maybe Chilkiah's father is doing, Jeremiah's father is doing good PR for his son. Here, I found the scroll my son wrote. No, <laughs> we don't know. Yes, Bob. The king reads the scroll and he rents his garment because he sees that the people are transgressing. And himself too, you'll see why. And himself too. But wait a minute, yeah. I'm out. Sure. The king has access to the Torah. What does he need this scroll to, to uh, realize? That's why scholars presume that the written Torah wasn't wasn't uh, what was not a codified, canonized document yet. Until after the about this is why scholars think that Judaism, as we know it, emerges starting at this time. The teachings existed, but as an oral tradition. You'll see why, Bob. Read on, and anybody who wants to claim that this existed long before this period is really in a trouble as they read chapter 23 here. Does that make sense? But you, we know the Torah existed we do. because it was passed down orally. So but we don't know in what form it was passed down we orally. We don't know if it was in a fixed form or if it was understood to be binding or normative. And we didn't know it was the five, the five books. books of Moses don't become normative until we hear from Ezra as they return from Babylonia saying he read from the Torah and explained it to people. So what a, some precursor to the Torah existed. But the Torah itself, we cannot make the claim that it existed as we know it at this time. This is the first time we hear about something called Sefer HaTorah. Uh, so to, chapter 23 will strengthen these points immeasurably. Let me show you. Okay? Don't wait. Huh? Don't wait. Okay. <laughs> at the king's summons, all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem assembled before him. The king went up to the house of the Lord, together with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, young and old, and he read to them Sefer Habrit, the entire text of the covenant scroll, which had been found in the house of the Lord. So he read this to everybody now, the king. 
Now, uh, the king stood by the pillar and solemnized the covenant before the Lord, that they would follow the Lord. Um, and uh, let's see, verse 3. Observe his commands, his uh, injunctions and his laws, okay? that's Deuteronomy language, with all your heart and with all your soul. And they would fulfill all the terms of this covenant as written on the scroll. And all the people entered into the covenant. Okay, so this is the first time we're hearing about a scroll written. You know, it's not tablets. It's Then the king ordered the high priest Chilkiah, Jeremiah's father, thank you, Shira, the priests of the second rank, and the guards of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord. Okay, listen to what was in the temple of the Lord. All the objects made for Baal and Asherah and all the host of heaven. Who are Baal and Asherah? They were like, uh, the Canaanite... Uh, um, they were like the um, Holy Family. Yeah, the idols. idols. What do you call it? The, yeah, but they're not just the idols. Right. They are the, 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 the gods the the, yeah. of the pantheon yeah. of the Canaanites. The, Canaanites. Yeah. the big gods. Baal and Asherah. The, the Baal's the male, Asherah the She's feminine. The mm-hmm. yeah. She's the goddess, the big goddess. The goddess. Yeah. The god and the goddess of the Canaanites. Right. Hang, there they are. Oh, they were right in the temple. In our temple. In our temple. Yeah. Right? Okay. This is why, if you're going to take a scholarly view of Jerusalem, when we talk about when does the monotheism we recognize emerge historically, it's hard to prove that it emerges any time before this. It's hard to prove it, even though people want to retroject it all the way back to the beginning. Um, we don't actually know. So it looks, and they take out, and all the host of heaven. Uh, so there's... Um, Lots of other things in there too. Now, God is the God of the heavenly hosts. That's why Adonai Tzvaot, but Baal and Asherah also had their host of heaven. So he burned them outside Jerusalem in the field of Kidron. We know where Kidron is. It's the valley right outside of Jerusalem. And he removed the ashes to Betha. He suppressed the idolatrous priest. He spit. I don't know what. Doesn't Does sound that nice. Mean suppressed? We're not. Use heart. Think of it as a euphemism. Um, and you don't have to be proud of this passage. I'm, I'm doing history with you right now. Uh, whom the kings of Judah had appointed. Wait. The kings of Judah had appointed idolatrous priests to make offerings at shrines in the towns of Judah and Jerusalem. And those who made offerings to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations. This was right in the holy temple. He brought out the image of Asherah from the house of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He beat it to dust and scattered its dust over the burial ground of the common people. Remember, a burial ground makes things impure because that's where the dead... We've studied the laws of purity. Oh, interesting. He tore down the cubicles of the male prostitutes in the house of the Lord at the place where the women wove coverings for Asherah, the goddess. Okay, so life in Jerusalem. That's what was going on. That's what was going on. We're talking. Wow. I love this. Um, suggest the women paid for services? Um, we don't know. Male prostitutes is an iffy word. It's the hakadeshim. Kadeshim comes from the word kadosh. 
and Kedeshim are translated in the text as um, prostitutes or sacred prostitutes. That, but but a zona a is a prostitute. Yeah. So we have to. I think we have to temper this translation. Oh, However, they were there were men and women known as Kedeshim and Kedeshot who were somehow involved. Sacred prostitutes were... Right. I, I just want to take the edge off the word prostitute because we yeah. know from ancient Assyria and Canaan that in order to... Uh, that one of the big springtime rituals yeah. was the sacred marriage of male and female which was enacted in the temple to bring the rains so it would fertilize the earth. This was the religion of the ancient Near East. So sacred prostitutes sounds so harsh, but just think of it as... No, I think they were say. I mean, I think they performed services, not necessarily just that. that I know, but the Levites were, and the Kohanim, the, they were all involved. But they're not Levites. <laughs> Let's just be clear about that. So, this is life, and this is what they're they're doing. What the um, church did in Rome to get rid of all the gospels that they didn't like, and the ones. That yes, in a harsh way. This is a religious reform. It's a. It's a. Um, What's the, it's a purging, a purging. And again, I'm not here to comment on that per se. Yeah, we're looking at an incredible purge. Um, Supposedly this is before the exile to Babylon. Supposedly and probably. Yeah. Um, He brought all the priests. It goes on and on. He demolished all, I'm I'm gonna gonna just, uh, he demolished the shrines of the gates. uh, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, which were on a person's left as he entered the city gate. Okay. Um, uh, he defiled Tophet. Tophet is in the ba- valley of Ben Chinom. That's the valley on the other side of Jerusalem, so that no one might consign his son or daughter to the fire of the god of Molech. That's where, that's where they birthed the children. That's where children Ge- were sacrificed. Okay, Ge-Hinom. think about, yeah, Gehinom. The Valley of Chinom, we know where it is, just in Jerusalem. Um, the word Gehinom, as it gets translated into Greek, is Gehenna, which becomes a term for hell. It appears that in addition to the fertility cults, right. there were also cults of right. human sacrifice. Right. In the, that's, predict, that's not surprising, is it? Uh, that, uh, I mean, this happens all over the world. This you, was pagan? Yeah, this is the religion of the Canaanites and the Assyrians, and this is Judaism emerges out of this, uh-huh. and is a uh, response to this, and is fighting it off. And when you read Deuteronomy and all this stuff about, uh, you know, all this language of purging is in Deuteronomy. Part of the mo- some of the most distasteful stuff to modern ears in Deuteronomy is an exact mirror of this. It, that's why scholars think that they were reading that scroll which eventually got incorporated in, during the period of exile into what became known as the Five Books of Moses. Because the book of Deuteronomy is of completely different form and format than the other four books. The other four books are covering the narrative. Right? And then Deuteronomy is one long oration by Moses hmm. that concludes the Torah. So the practice of uh, the Hebrews... <coughs> prior to the uh, destruction of the first temple has no, bear, no relationship to what we think of as Judaism. It appears that way. Mm-hmm. 
And it appears that, therefore, we know very little about early Judaism. But we do know, well, but it bears little resemblance. However, we do know we can date the prophecies, the speeches of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Amos to the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries BCE. So we know that there was something called the Covenant of Moses that was part of Israelite culture at the time. Uh, so let's just say that there we can't prove that there was a monolithic Judaism at this time. But we, I think we can state that there was a stream of this idea of a covenant with God that wouldn't go away, that weaves its way through all this and eventually becomes the raison d'etre of Judaism um, that, keep, that gives it its identity and not just another, another pagan culture among these other pagan cultures. And I want to use the pagan again without a negative... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you understand. Yeah. I, I'm not telling the story of the march of... Uh, humanity towards the truer and truer. I'm doing history right now. So how long um, from the end of the Book of Numbers to this particular time period? What, what do you mean? How long have they been in the land? Oh, the Book of Numbers ends? Oh but, oh, oh, but the Book of Numbers also is probably composed long after the fact. Right, but I mean, historically, so... How long are they in this? Oh, okay. So if Moses is speaking on the banks of the Jordan, yeah, yeah. which is what happens all through Deuteronomy, and they're on the banks of Jordan, historically that gets dated to around 1200 BCE. Okay. okay. Um, the period of the judges, as best people can tell, and judges is a bad word, a better word is chieftains, when the tribes are a confederation of kin, kinship tribes. Uh, seems to last a couple hundred years, out of which emerges the desire for a, a unified kingdom and the story of Saul and then King David and on, probably somewhere in the 10th century BCE. And now the house of David has been um, ruling for 400 years or something. And like so that. they ha still haven't gotten what Abraham was given? No, and that's why if you're going to be an honest historian, you have to leave it as a completely open question. How much of the Torah is retrojecting uh -huh. ideas and history backwards uh, and religious ideas and how much it's actually kind of codifying something and then retrojecting that back into the past. Now, the reason, the reason a lot of Jews don't like doing this is because when this trend of historical study of the Bible and of the ancient Near East started happening, it was dominated by Christian scholars in Europe who had a purpose in mind. They wanted to show that Judaism didn't really exist before Christianity and that Judaism was truly a mongrel. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah, yeah. And so the, the, the original sin of modern biblical history is that it, it had a, it, its purpose was clear in the late 1800s which was to delegitimize Judaism and so when we read a passage like this well it sure is delegitimizing Judaism isn't it mm -hmm. yep. so this was just like candy for these scholars and uh, what you could say about biblical scholarship over the last 
since the Jews got involved over the last hundred years, is Jews are trying to push back the date of when we become a people. His Jewish scholars, as opposed to Christian scholars who had tried to eliminate that and said even in the second century BCE or the first century, Judaism was still this kind of hybrid mongrel thing and it doesn't really become what it was meant to be until Christianity. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah, yeah. So that's why I just want to say that if you study biblical scholarship, that's, that's the shadow behind it. But if we can just let that be, then this becomes quite fascinating. Yes, Jay? Okay, yeah, I'm getting a bit lost in the details, but I'm going to be very brief. Uh, just on a broad stroke, just so it's clear in my head, you're saying that, um, that the scroll that was found was really Moses, I think you used the word oration. An oration by Moses, but that doesn't mean Moses wrote it. Right, doesn't mean Moses wrote it, but he said it. No, it doesn't mean Moses said it. What does oration mean? It means that it's in the form of a speech by Moses. So, so it's, a, it's common practice throughout history to write something and then, and then in order to give it its ancient veracity, say it was spoken by somebody great. Somebody great. Matthew, Luke, etc. You attribute it. Even though that someone great might not have said it. Right. Wow. So, so, at that point, when they're that, that allegation, this person might have said it, to the point that it was written, how many years have, have, have in between those? Scholars would guess about 700 years, about seven so centuries. 700 years, the, the accuracy, I mean, I mean, I'm just following up on your thing. Right. That there's, there's historical kind of credence to the fact it could be all wrong. The Torah is a literary creation, everybody. Those who claim it to be the word, the unerring word of God, which is, it, uh, it doesn't hold up under objective scrutiny. Um, that doesn't mean, as you know, that I don't love the Torah or think it's an inspired document or that I want to run my, live my life by it. It means I don't, have to, I don't have to accept it as somehow verbatim the words of Moses because there's no proof that it is, and there's more proof that it isn't. Is there anything divine about the Torah? Not in my, not in my book, because uh, as soon as you speak in language, you're speaking in a human context. And language, as soon as it's coined, is already uh, an interpretation of experience. It's like, how, how could it possibly be? Uh, so, uh, when we say divine in origin, I'd have to say no. It's human in origin. Because I don't think God talks Hebrew or English. I think people invent language. <laughs> so why is this different than Shakespeare, for example? Why indeed? Uh, why indeed? <laughs> why indeed? Because of what we've invested in it. Right. No, 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 That's no. Not, not about faith. faith. It's because... It's how we faith in the word. Faith that the word reveals something to us. Yes. But uh, there are Shakespeare scholars who feel that way about Shakespeare. So you, you, might, you might say it's on a par with Shakespeare. Nothing 
Today I've got my history hat on, and in that, with that hat on, it is human language that, that's it, it, an endlessly uh, a, a work of genius. Um, yeah? And 2,000 years or more of, of commentary on it, too. What other hat do you wear when you look at this? Ah. <laughs> so, uh, yes? I didn't hear the original question that Bob asked. Bob, what was your? Do I believe that the Torah is of divi- of the Bible is of divine origin? Okay, I got that part. Right, and as an historian, the answer is no. Um, but uh, as a humble historian, the answer is no. Like, um, remarkable, remarkable, Indeed. worthy, uh, venerable. Uh, a document that's, that creates a civilization that's still unfolding, all of that. If it's, uh, but no, that's my answer. However, the Torah doesn't just function as history. And uh, so, even though I was going to read you more of stuff, take my word for it that it's quite a religious purge. It matches the instructions in Deuteronomy incredibly closely. It matches up with Jeremiah, with them, and so this is a this is a piece of Torah study, biblical study that's really uh, actually can rather than just total guesswork, like did the Jews did the did the Jews leave did the Israelites leave Egypt from slavery? Well, uh, for me, the power of that's in the story, because there is no evidence that we can have fun with as historians to prove it. There's one mention of Israel that's been found so far on an Egyptian stele, along with 40 other nations that Pharaoh so-and-so says he conquered. Um, that's the only extra-biblical mention of even Israel from that time period we have. That's not enough to make a historical case about. But we have enough here. Um, and so, uh, so that's why I wanted to, because we have enough, that's why I wanted to do history with you for a little while because I find it very fruitful. But history is not Judaism. What's Judaism? Judaism is what we do with the story. The story. What we do with the history, that's Judaism. And that's what we usually study here. But I wanted to do history with you for a while today because it's just, because we're entering the book of Deuteronomy and there's actually a lot we can make very intelligent guesswork about, about its origins, its time and place, the, its authorship even. It's fascinating, totally fascinating. For me, fortunately, I'm not conflicted about having fun with history and needing the Torah to be of divine origin for it to be my sacred book. Uh, Jay? Yeah, and, and just to follow up on that thing, is it like Shakespeare? There's a big difference in, 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 in the time gap. In other words, this, is, this was written 700 years. Shakespeare, you know, the Battle of Henry V, uh, the fourth, was, was written within 100 years. So there's... There's, I would say there's much more accuracy in Shakespeare because it's, it's much less time. But let's, let's think about, well, wait, wait, let's think about the religion of Shakespeare. Yeah. It's a massive academic yeah. enterprise Absolutely. and a massive artistic enterprise to which people devote their whole lives. And I read a book recently, a few years ago, called Will in the World by Stephen Greenblatt. Cause I read it because it was written for popular consumption, you know, something I felt I could handle. Uh, 
there, you know there are debates over whether William Shakespeare actually existed right. or whether he actually wrote, wrote his plays. Right. It might as well be. Yeah. He might as well be of divine origin for the way humans have created a culture and a cult around Shakespeare. Uh, I think it's an apt comparison, actually. Uh, Historically in, speaking, though, I, I would think it's more accurate than this. No, you should look no, at the. No. You should look at what people claim about Shakespeare. Yeah. There's gaps in his life, and, and so why did he do this, and when did he do that? There are uh, all sorts of gaps. Jay, I can't speak except for having read like one really great book about it. But um, the debates about who he was, whether he actually wrote it, who ghost wrote for him, who. You just wouldn't believe it, Jay. No, no, no. I do believe it. However, my, my, my only point is 700 years has a bigger impact than writing ah. with things happening to you at that moment. If you feel I think time can dilute Well, but, but Shakespeare's also not just writing about Henry V, he's writing about Julius Caesar, he's writing about, we don't know what's history and what's not history in Shakespeare. Uh, we don't, you know, we, he uses settings that people are familiar with, but these are settings from my reading that were common settings for playwrights all over the place. These were tropes. These were genres. He's writing in genres. Is that sort of what you were going to say? Bob? Sort of. I mean, to, to say that Shakespeare is closer to true history is nonsense. That's what I would say, too, from the little I know. Yeah. The culture... That Shakespeare. Are about Shakespeare's plays or Shakespeare the man? Two different things. No. Shakespeare's history plays are interpretations, and a lot of them are based on other existing things and other stories that were told. To say, wait, what Bob said is that to say that Shakespeare's plays are historically accurate is, is ridiculous. And write, it had nothing to do with real history, it had to do with art. Now you can argue well, that the main what you know, you're talking about is Okay. Okay, so let's stop there. This is an argument, okay. Let's stop there. However, I think the analogy of Shakespeare scholars to biblical scholars to Shakespeare lovers to Bible lovers is apt. Well, I think there's it, some similarities. I think, there's some, I think it's an apt comparison. There are lots of differences, one, you know, but uh, in terms of this body of literature, which is our legacy of, that we have, that's all we have to work with, um, yeah. So now, what do we do with it? So one thing we do with it is we look at it as literature. So uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna rush along here. And uh, now you can close your Tanakh, and if you turn in your Chumash to page 1161. Give me chapter and verse. Uh, Deut Deuteronomy chapter one. That's on 1161. Often we study Torah as literature. In other words, as a structured literary piece with themes, with, uh, with a rhythm of narrative. When we've done that, it bears great fruit because one of the things that we, and this is still getting closer to traditional Jewish study, but because uh, literature allows for our more of our interpretation and imagination. and imagination. And when you look at the literary structure of the book of Deuteronomy, 
we can see how the editors, whoever they were, or the authors, what they wanted to emphasize. These are the words that Moses addressed to all Israel on the other side of the Jordan, through the wilderness, in the Aravah near Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Chatzirot, Dizahav. It's 11 days' journey from Choreb, which is the other name for Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir route. And it was in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, that Moses addressed the Israelites in accordance with the instructions that the Eternal had given for them. After he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Cheshbon, and king Og of Bashan, who dwelt in Ashtarot Edre, I'm on the next page now, on the other side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this teaching. So that's the prologue, the Moses on the banks of the Jordan, the 40th year, undertook to expound this Torah. On the other side. On the not, far side of the on Jordan. On the far side. Right, he's not Even gonna, though they hadn't gotten there yet, it was still considered the far side. Yes, that's some of the retrojecting we have to imagine. Um, and then he says, this is what, so now, in this imagined final speech of Moses, I'm saying imagined, or in this final speech of Moses, look what gets center stage. There's a, there's a little more um, prologue here. The Eternal Our God spoke to us at Chorob saying, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Rav Lachem Shevet. Bahar Hazeh. That phrase gets used in L'Chadodi. Rav Lachem Shevet. Start out and make your way to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Aravah, the hill country, the Shvelah, the Negev, the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, the Lebanon, and as far as the great river Euphrates. See, I place the land at your disposal. Go, take possession of the land that the Eternal swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to assign to them and to their heirs after them. Thereupon I said to you, says Moses, I cannot bear the burden of you by myself. The Eternal your God has multiplied you until you are today as numerous as the stars of the sky. May the Eternal, the God of your ancestors, increase your numbers a thousandfold and bless you as promised. But how can I bear unaided the trouble of you and the burden and the bickering? Pick from each of your tribes personages who are wise, discerning, and experienced, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me and said, what you propose to do is good. So I took your tribal leaders, wise and experienced personages, and appointed them heads over you, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, and officials for your tribes. He was told this by his father-in-law. Right, but now he's remembering it in this way. And the point is coming. I charged your magistrates at that time as follows. Hear out your fellow Israelites. Decide justly between anyone and a fellow Israelite or a stranger. You shall not be partial in judgment. Hear out low and high alike. Fear no one when making judgment, for judgment is God's. And any matter that is too difficult for you, you shall bring to me and I will hear it. And thus I instructed you at the time about the various things that you should do. Okay, so of all... Speaking? Moses. Moses. So of all the, the commandments that Moses could say, this is what I told you. Look how the Dvarim chooses to 
Elevate. Elevate. Justice. We've heard this enough times, right? There is this fundamental, in addition to religious purges and all the crap that we were reading about, there's this element of Judaism that we have kept central long after Judaism gave up on religious purges, God willing, and not take it up again. Um, now that we have ways to do purges. Um, uh, and um, it's the classic language of justice. Hear out low and high alike. Do not be partial. Do not fear anyone when you're making judgments. If there's anything that's at the center of Moses' Torah, this is it. Mm -hmm. And literarily, what comes in the center of Deuteronomy is on page 1294, literally the center. Page 1294, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, Parshat Shoftim. 1294. Chapter 16, verse 18. You shall appoint magistrates and officials for your tribes in all the settlements that the Eternal your God has given you, and they shall govern the people with due justice. You shall not judge unfairly. You shall show no partiality. You shall not take bribes, for bribes blind the eyes of the discerning and upset the plea of the just. Justice, justice, you shall pursue. Mm -hmm. That you may thrive and occupy the land that the eternal your God is giving you. This is the beginning of the Parsha called Shoftim, Judges. It's the central proportion of the book. And it continues in chapter 17, we won't have time to read it today, with exactly the instructions that um, Josiah appears to be reading in that scroll. And then it has something, but I do want you to turn ahead to chapter 17, to page 1296. Mm -hmm. Verse uh, uh, 14. If, after you have entered the land that the eternal your God has assigned to you and taken possession of it and settled in it, and you decide, I will set a king over me, as do all the nations about me. You shall be free to set a king over yourself, one chosen by the eternal your God. Be sure to set as king over yourself one of your own people. You must not set a foreigner over you one who is not your kin. Moreover, he shall not keep many horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses. Since the Eternal has warned you, you must not go back that way again. Now, does the author mean physically to Egypt or the mindset of Egypt, the mindset of Egypt or both? Because what we learn in the book of Kings and Jeremiah is that Egypt and Babylonia are warring over the land of Israel. First, and the king of Israel, when you read the book of Kings, are constantly having to decide who to pay tribute to. It's like, it's like a craps game. It's like, like uh, 
And when they guess wrong, they get conquered, and they have to pay huge tributes to that. When they guess right, they're in luck. It's like, so Egypt, it's interesting. So it's also, Egypt becomes both a physical place and a state of mind in the Torah. Yes, tomorrow. Um, do you see, like, the, there seems to be this theme starting from very, very early on of just justice and ethics. Just, yes. Just running through the Jewish people. I'm just curious, how did uh, that, you know, where do you think that that spark came from? Well, my feeling is that's, that's divine mind. inspiration, okay? But I don't know what I, in other words, I believe that, there, that the divine inspiration of Judaism is the part of humanity, the part of human beings, whatever Moses was, was a person who reached for the, the vision of what's, what we can really be. I call that divine inspiration. Um, and that Judaism, that becomes the heart and soul of Judaism. And it, it's, it doesn't get lost. Remember last week I was reading to you all the places in the prophets where it says, I don't want your sacrifices, said God. I want you to do justice and love mercy. You know, over and over and over again. Thank God. That's the Judaism we inherit. Right? That's the heartbeat of it. So I don't know how or why, and this is why as a Jew I attribute it to Moses. I don't, I don't know anything historically about Moses, and I'm not going to try to prove anything. But I have Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher, our rabbi. That's what our tradition sets up as the kind of source of this you, understanding. Do you think it was his first, or was it in the peoplehood? I have no idea. I, I believe that there are inspired individuals who have come at the right place at the right time and become the vessels for, uh, you know. Divine. Look, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, and he was a product of his time and place along with the, you know, he didn't come out of nowhere. So I guess I'm not the great man in history theory, because, but at the same time, certain people become, for some reason, the lightning rod of the moment. And for us, it's Moses, mm. uh, whoever or whatever he was. There's something about integrity, which is injustice, that allows the society. Justice and integrity. There's something about integrity, which is contained in the word justice. And it really allows civilization to, to blossom. Whereas if you have bribery, and we have that too with these billionaires giving all these things out, you wonder where the, the sense of democracy is, and it, it's a complicated thing. Listen, this is a divine principle, right? The sense that humans can rise to something which, is, uh, uh, which goes against so much of the grain of our nature is what Judaism tells us is possible and then demands of us. That's me as the Jew speaking, not as the historian. I'm fascinated by the descriptions of Jerusalem in the 6th century, 5th, 7th century BCE. I'm totally fascinated by it, but that's not my Judaism. I just couldn't resist sharing that part with you. It's part of my Judaism, but it's not what animates me. Um, uh, Ellen? I was thinking that some of the, the teachers about justice probably have to do with understanding the reality of being a tiny country in the middle of empires, that if they um, keep themselves to themselves and, and are just to everyone who passes by, all the traders and all the, well, anybody who's coming through and living with them, 
then if they have that reputation of being just, then the other, then the, the marauding empires will basically, they may come through, they may demand tribute, but they'll basically leave them alone. Oh, that's interesting. And, and it's when they turn, when they forget and they turn to Egypt as an ally, that Babylon says, well, that's it, you're done. We're coming right through and taking you over on a way. So Switzerland, they got to stay neutral. Yeah. Uh, and show that... Right, that one way of being neutral is to be honest to everyone. Hold on, she's just providing an interesting theory, yeah, right? Yeah, no, I agree. It, but I would say, instead of neutral, it's practicing non-reactivity. Uh-huh. That's what I would call it. So, in other words, don't get engaged in the fight. In the, right, right. Stay, stay unalive. Oh. And, and, and unalive, just upright, and centered an, in the truth. What an interesting hypothesis of how a small nation would manage to yeah. preserve itself. Oh, it's I could not also, that different now. I, it's not. I could, I could also, so it's, a, it's an yeah. hypothesis of yeah. how we came to this insight as a people. Was it Moses? Was it the Jewish people? I don't know. Um, uh, I would add that that's not self-evident because a small people might also learn how to uh, survive by trickery and deceit. Yes. Um, and that might be the lesson they draw as the small fry. So, uh, Bob. What you read before and emphasize the justice part as mm -hmm. basic. And there was a few sentences before that that were about organization and the distribution of authority. That that's, seems to me, I'd like to hear your comment about how that is a theme repeated elsewhere. Oh, yes. Yeah. yes. Because it, it's the organizational and distribution and sharing of authority that's written down. I thought that was very That would be the structure for, the, uh, for an adequate um, um, uh, dispensation of justice, you know, that without that structure and without, without a system of courts and... Uh, How unusual is that, whether it's written in the 12th century B.C. or... Or the 6th century B.C.? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. Before we run out of time, I want to share one more point here and then uh, one more thing. So then it says... Don't go that way again to Egypt, and he shall not have many wives, uh -huh, lest his heart go astray, nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. It doesn't say how many. So, uh, well, Solomon had a lot. So, um, but the point here is don't, don't trade people for horses, don't have many wives. This is the rule. This is for the king, right. if you put a king over you. So all of these are known as the laws of kings in the book of Deuteronomy. And they clearly are an effort to create a society that would, where justice would be uh, embedded. And this is what the king has to do. When he is seated on his royal throne, he shall have a copy of this teaching written for him on a scroll by the Levitical priests. Let it remain with him and let him read it all his life so that he may learn to revere the eternal his God, to observe faithfully every word of this teaching as well as these laws. Why? So that he will not act haughtily toward his fellows mm. or deviate from this Torah to the right or to the left. Mm. So that's the laws of kings. Mm. Um, this is consistent in Jewish teaching. 
that no one is above the law. This was the great innovation of Judaism as an ancient monarchy, was that the king was not divinely, not a representative of divinity, as was true in almost every other society, but was a human being whose capability to serve as king was contingent on him following this teaching, this Torah. It's a big deal. Mm. Yes? Doesn't that sort of set up for the future the idea of a constitution? Sure. Sure, that the rule of law has to be Yes. It is, it is fair to say that Judaism creates something called the rule of law and gives it divine origin that transcends any human uh, who wants to subvert it. And that rule of law is about the fair, is about fundamental fairness in all matters of judgment. Um, uh, otherwise, the king will act haughtily. Right? This somehow Maybe Ellen's theory is right. I have no idea how this idea emerged, but it's a transformative idea, in my opinion. The divine right... hmm? Would keep the king humane. The king has to... And maybe humble? Humble. Humble and human. The last thing that kings are inclined to do, right? Because they have power. So we need... Something about Judaism is this amazing understanding of human nature and the need for checks against tyranny. If they become a king like any other king, that's going back to Egypt. Don't go that way again. We have the whole story here. So now we're looking at this literarily. And we understand what's meant by Egypt. We understand what's meant by don't go back that way again. We understand that if you decide to put a king over you, then make sure the king abides by the teachings just like the rest of you are supposed to. So, um, history, but literarily, then we start to get to Judaism. And then there's a spiritual interpretation. We have five minutes. I want to share this with you. It's so beautiful. Send one around. Okay, thanks, Stu. There you go. I find this is a very fast way to do it. Thanks. I got plenty. Oh, you didn't get one either. Come back. Don't worry. Okay. comes back. Okay. Two. Here you go. Two to go. One. Somebody comes at the last minute, we have one. Okay. Now, what happens in Judaism is that with the understanding, the only way Judaism stays vibrant and vital, as we know, is by treating the Torah both as the word of God, but not as the literal word of God. Meaning that there are countless possible interpretations of this text. Otherwise, as cultures changed and as civilizations evolved, this would become just an artifact. So we know that the way Judaism kept this artifact alive was by freeing ourselves for interpretive flights. And so now we're even beyond literary analysis which is very 
important to me because I think you can get at key themes that way into, um, let's see, what would be the right word? Um, poetic, poetic flight. Uh, and so, go, this is the phrase that this, this is the Sfat Emet who we study a lot. He's a Hasidic rabbi from Warsaw in the late, in the late 1800s. And what I want you to do is look at the line on 1162. That is Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 5. We read this verse. On the other side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this teaching. The Hebrew is Ho'il Moshe Be'er et HaTorah Hazot. Okay, Torah means teaching, right? Ho'il is undertake, uh, and Be'er is interpret or expound. So first of all, Deuteronomy sets Moses up as someone who's about to not give the teaching, but be'er. Moses, our teacher, is about to teach us. So right in those words is the, 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 the seed of how Judaism treats this text. If Moses is going to interpret it, how much the more so, you know, that's what our job as, te- as students and teachers is to do. However, be'er in Hebrew also has another meaning. Well. A well. A be'er is a well. A well you dig for water. Interesting. Wow. It's, a, it's, it's to, to go figure. Well, well, Miriam, well. Well, the word, I, I'm just saying, be'er means to interpret or expound, and be'er is a well. Be'er sheva is the, you know, us. Okay. But where water is so precious and appreciated, So Moses is teaching. Moses is tapping into the well of Torah. This is the spiritual and poetic understanding of Torah that we are well acquainted with now. And, this, and so that means that what Moses is doing is he's tapping some deep source. That's a way of understanding divine inspiration. God is known as Mekor Mayim Chayim in several places in Torah. The source Makor means, oh, literally means a water source of living waters. Makor is the head of a stream, a wellhead. Um, so God is known in the Torah as the source of living water. Moses taps that source. And so now we're beyond a literary, again, inter- literary structural interpretation to a poetic one, uh, which is where spiritual insight emerges. 
spiritual insight cannot, you know, spiritual insight, we can get some great ahas from historical analysis and from literary analysis, but then there's the part where you have to take flight, right, or you have to tap deep. And so the Sfat Emmet says, these are the words Moses spoke. The Midrash comments that the language of Torah heals the tongue. As scripture says, the tree of life is a healing for the tongue. This is shorthand for Moses' tongue having been healed. Right? Remember Moses, I said, Moses' tongue was heavy. And, but in the book of Deuteronomy, he speaks freely, expansively. So, it's a, so what happened to Moses? Again, now we're in the realm of imagination. Something healed his tongue. What was it? It was tapping deep below his ego, below his sense of limitation, below to the place and becoming a channel for expression. Anyone who's been artists in any way understand what this experience is, yep. right? Whatever it is, whether it's you know, photography or art or, or writing, or, that true creativity happens when we mysteriously take all of our skills but then get out of the way. And he can get out of the way because he knows he's going to die. Wow. He knows he's going to die. He has nothing to lose anymore. That's when his ego really, okay, I'll let it flow. The Zohar compares Torah to a tree. It has branches, fruit, leaves, and bark, in addition to the trunk of the tree itself to which all these are joined. So too the Torah. It gives sustenance and life to all of creation. Each being is attached to it according to its own rung of holiness. All of creation is the tree of life. The Torah is the invisible source and the expression of it. It's all one. That's the mystical view. For by Torah the Holy One created the world, and all things are as a garment to the innermost point. The languages in which Torah is explained are also but a garb. Ho, mo, holy smokes. Here's a Hasidic rabbi saying that the language in which Torah is explained, he says there's a Torah behind this Torah. <laughs> that this Torah is a garment, an expression of Torah that's divine life. That of the, the Torah that from which this emerges. Oh boy, is that heresy? No. Would you say that's, that's individual spiritual growth? I mean What well, yes I would, but what I'm saying about heresy is is what Bob and I were talking about. Wait a minute, the Torah isn't the word of God? Well, yes and no. According to a, a Rebbe like the uh, like the uh, Sfat Emet. It's an expression of the divine, but it's not the deepest, deepest source. It's just a covering. Not just a covering, it's a covering. A covering. It's an expression. It's, and the, just like the tree, roots, which has bark, leaves, branches, fruit, all of that's Torah. But what animates that tree? That's the deepest Torah. And it's not verbal, it's, okay? Um, the divine utterance is Torah itself which is then garbed in other tongues 
From this derives the healing to the tongue. That is why the sages permitted Bibles to be written in every language. Mm-hmm. Our text goes on to say, Moses agreed to explain Be'er this teaching, and Rashi says he explained it to them in 70 languages. This is why it says explain Be'er as a well. The more broadly Torah's light expands through its outer garments, the closer everything gets to the innermost. In this way, the inner wellspring becomes most open. This is a a mystical, ecstatic view of that Torah is expressed in every language there whenever we are close to the source. This is Torah in its broadest, most uh, inspired sort of context. So scripture says, drink water from your cistern flowing up from your well. God placed a holy point into the very nature of each creature. The, that's where our, we tap our well. The Jew in particular has a holy soul. That's a 19th century Rebbe talking to his people, right? We would say, no. Other people have holy souls too. It is called your cistern for it is attached to the body. Okay, don't get too hung up on this. The more you take this soul light into yourself, drawing your deeds to follow this light, the more of spirit and higher soul is added to you, and this opens the wellspring that flows without end. This is flowing from your well. So it is that after all this journeying about in the desert, during which Israel drew holy light into all these places, now Moses explains Torah like a flowing well. And the way I like to say it is, the way I translate this verse is, and Torah welled up in Moses. Right? That's my take on this word play. Be'er Moshe, and the Torah welled up in Moses and poured out of him like light. Listen to uh, Art Green's comment here. That's the Artalics. The teaching that Torah preceded the world is well known to the ancient rabbis and is widely quoted. But the mystical view of that primordial Torah represented here is quite transformative. Torah as God speaks it is beyond any language. That includes the Hebrew of our own Torah text. The written Torah itself is thus already commentary, the interpretation that Moses or ancient Israel gives to the transverbal utterance of God. Torah can exist in all the 70, or we would say the thousand languages, thousands of languages of humanity. For us as Jews, Hebrew is first among those languages, and our Torah, our own cistern, is the first place we turn to discover the hidden speech of God. But even prior to Torah text, as the Sfat Emmet understands so well, is the silent turning inward toward that silent wellspring out of which all words and interpretations ever flow. Isn't that beautiful? So I went over a little, but I had to get there. Uh, Look at the journey we took today with Deuteronomy. History. Fascinating. Literature, literary analysis, look for themes. Look for through points. Look for um, analogies that get you back to somewhere else in the text. It's going to make the text more uh, transparent and and, uh, meaning alive. And then remember where of all this inspiration comes from, the deepest place. If we're not involved in that activity as human beings, this isn't going to get us anywhere because we're not open to inspiration. 
right? And that's the deepest source of our religious life and of our culture. So that's what I wanted to share with you today, to take, have fun with the beautiful day. And thank you. I was really excited to teach this class. Thank you. Yeah. Okay.